Welcome to Mates in Courage, brought to you by Good News Unlimited. Be part of a conversation between Graham Hood, champion fisherman, airline pilot and school dropout, and Ali Gonzalez, wannabe fisherman and holder of more useless degrees than you can poke a stick at. What could these two possibly have in common? The fact that neither of them have anything to hide. That's what. Mates in Courage. Take a listen. G'day, Ellie. Good to see you again. Yeah, here right we are. Bushy tailed. What do you want to talk about? Well, I want to talk about uh, that 60 Minutes report. It was a whole program long that you and I sat down together and watched uh, yesterday. You hadn't been able to sleep the previous night, you told me, and you'd watched this at one or two in the morning. That wouldn't be help, helpful in getting you back to sleep. And then you wanted Michelle to see it or you wanted to see it again, and, and I happened to be visiting and we watched it together. Yeah. Um, and it was all about the scandal that's erupted over the Boeing 737 Max, Max yeah. aircraft and the two crashes or the horrific loss of life, and the huge scandal about uh, how Boeing you know, has handled this or not handled it. I don't know about you, as I sat through that, I was horrified yeah. at how such a thing could be possible and what the, the passengers and crew would have gone through. Yeah, I wanted Michelle to watch it. As we know, I fly a Boeing 737 for Qantas and I have done for 33 mm. years now. In fact, there's probably not too many people in the world who's flown as many hours on a 737 as I have. And but not, not the Maxes. Not the Maxes, no. Right. Um, I, I've flown up to the 800 and uh, the 737-800. And that's not a boast because I probably wasn't brave enough to try flying, you know, an Airbus A380 or anything like that. I just stuck with what I knew, which was the 737. Mm. So I'm not big noting myself, but I've been on it for probably longer than most people in Qantas or even in the world now. But the drama around the 737 MAX, we've all been watching unfold. We'd we'd hope that... um, it wasn't a system problem with the aeroplane. Maybe, had... maybe give us a summary, Graham. Cause... Yeah, okay. Well, the 737, yeah. the Boeing 737, I think, first flew in the early 60s. There's been more than 10,000 of them made since then, and they're the most prolific airliner on the face of the planet. They're a mm-hmm. real cash cow. They, they make airlines lots of money. They've made Boeing lots of money, and uh, they keep redeveloping them. Now, the reason they keep sticking with the same intrinsic design is, A, it works, mm-hmm. And B, they keep re-engineering them and they keep uh, upgrading them with uh, the latest electronics and uh, it just seems to work. But there's also another reason and that is because there's so many of them around the world and because Boeing make all their aeroplanes to be almost the same in the cockpit and have done for years, the reason for that is called commonality. And commonality to an airline that's buying an aeroplane means that if you've already got a fleet of Boeing aeroplanes... And you buy a new set of Boeing aeroplanes, then you don't have to retrain your pilots who've flown the older models Mm -hmm. to the newer model Mm -hmm. because you make it to be so familiar in the new one Mm. as to be like getting from the old one into another old one. Makes sense. Yeah, and that saves airlines a lot of money. It it cuts down on pilot training costs and uh, it reduces overall costs and efficiency. It means that pilots can virtually get in and fly them with very little retraining or Mm -hmm. understanding. A quick engineering course and you're done. The airlines that have operated big fleets of these, and there's one in America, Southwest Airlines, have always said to Boeing, we'll buy 500 737s off you if you keep them the same. Mm -hmm. And that's what Boeing have done. Now, in order to keep the training costs down and make them more 
attractive to airlines that were wanting to buy them. They tried to keep them as close to the fleets that they already had as possible mm-hmm. with a minimal amount of adjustment. But they, they got to a stage where Airbus, who are their main competitor, were producing aeroplanes that were vastly more efficient and Boeing had to catch up by putting new engines on an old model. To do that, they had to make adjustments to the airframe and adjustments, adjustments to the handling characteristics of the Boeing. And unbeknownst to anybody, to get it through in a hurry, they decided to incorporate an automated system which took control off the pilots in a case where the uh, computer system on the aeroplane deemed that it was about to stall or lose flying speed, because, and it would push the nose down. Because from what I understand, because they had to put the more powerful engines on and, and put the engines further forward. Further forward and further up. And further up. Then which increased the lifting moment when the power was on and, the, and they were scared that it was going to stall yeah. out because the nose attitude was too high. And that's why they stuck this automatic system on. Yeah, this is called MCAS. Now, they installed the MCAS system into the aeroplane, which was fine if they told everybody that they'd done it. But none of the airlines that bought them and none of the pilots that flew them were told that this system was sitting there like a cage beast, waiting to activate if it ever sensed that the aeroplane was about to stall. And pilots, uh, not being a pilot myself, uh, need to know what the, all the systems are in that can kick in. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's like you imagine you're driving a truck down the freeway. Yeah. Somebody listening might be. You're driving this brand new Kenworth or whatever it is, and you've got a B double behind you, and um, and all of a sudden the vehicle decides to uh, to turn hard left mm-hmm. because of an automatic system that was meant to kick in when it sensed a certain condition on the road to take it off the road so that you weren't killed, and you didn't know that system existed, mm-hmm. and you're veering into a telegraph pole or a tree or off the edge of an embankment, and you've got no idea why you're doing it because you haven't been told. Mm. about this system, which has just malfunctioned on you. Mm. Horrifying. Horrifying. Boeing put this system in and they connected it to only one sensor, uh, a sensor on the side of the cockpit outside, which tells the pilot the angle of attack of the the aeroplane. In other words, it stays always true to the airflow that's coming at the Mm -hmm. aeroplane and the angle of the plane moving up or down changes the incidence of that device Mm -hmm. on the side. And that device then says to the the MCAS computer, the aeroplane's about to stall, put the nose down. And automatically, a connection regarding the autopilot kicks in and rolls the trim forward and the aeroplane pitches down for 10 seconds. The more likely of that probe on the side of the aeroplane detecting a high attitude is normally just after takeoff. Because when the aeroplane's at high altitude cruising along, it's virtually level. Mm-hmm. When you consider that an aer- the only time the aer- an aeroplane really has its nose pointing at the sky is in the takeoff mm-hmm. regime, and that's when this device kicks in. Now, there was a Lion Air incident, uh, Lion Air Airlines in Indonesia, where these guys struggled for eight to ten minutes to try and work out what was going on mm-hmm. with this aeroplane that kept pitching nose down, and eventually they completely lost control of it, and it flew right up against the speed of sound at a 40 degrees nose down pitch. Now, 40 degrees pointing at the ground from an aeroplane is absolutely terrifying. Now, when an aeroplane comes into land, it's probably operating in the realm of plus or minus four degrees. Wow. So you can imagine what 40 degrees looks like. It's like a vertical dive, almost a vertical dive. And the power's roaring, the uh, the engines are roaring, the aeroplane's pitching nose down, and it's racing at the ground at a rapid rate of knots with two people up the front struggling to try and work out what on earth's going on 
and how on earth they're going to save this thing from going burying itself into the ocean or the ground. With Lion Air, that happened. It buried itself into the ocean. Hmm. Uh, Indonesian Airlines have a very poor safety record, so everyone automatically assumed, and me one of them, that this was just Lion Air and this was just another... Um, Indonesian accident caused by lack of uh, by poor training and lack of skill and, and pilot error. Pilot error. Mm-hmm. I immediately assumed pilot error uh, to my ultimate disgrace. Now Boeing apparently recognised that this was probably a failure of their MCAS system, but failed to act on it quickly. Mm. Uh, about a week after that accident, they admitted that it, they had this MCAS system on the aeroplane and nobody knew about it. It wasn't in any of the manuals or any of the mm. books. They admitted it to the horror of people who'd been flying them and buying them and, and operating them for, you know, several months already. Mm. And then they said that they'd fixed it. They'd fixed the problem. It was a computer software problem and they'd fixed it. Then lo and behold, a couple of months later, taking off out of Addis Ababa, an Ethiopian mm. airline, 737 MAX, went through the same horror. And uh, as a result of these two accidents, 346 people lost their lives in the most mm. horrific way. And I watched that 60 Minutes story and I saw Liz Hayes presenting it and I saw uh, these flights being reenacted in the simulator and I've got to admit it brought tears to my eyes. I don't think there's any pilot in the world who wouldn't, who wouldn't have been emotional at uh, what their brother pilots were going through. They would have been uh, horrified at the, um, the lack of control that those pilots were able to exert on that aeroplane which was doing just what it wanted. Mm. And so... Um, you, you look at these things. Now, this this may, I don't think it will, but it may do Boeing a lot of damage. Uh, I was going to say it may destroy Boeing, but Boeing is an amazing company that's been building aeroplanes longer than anyone can remember, and they build beautiful aeroplanes. I've always had a saying in my career, if it ain't Boeing, I ain't going. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like in Australia, we have this Ford mentality and a Holden mentality. Mm-hmm. I've always stuck by Boeing. I've flown an Airbus type, but I've always stuck by Boeing. And I, I love what they do. And I've been to Seattle. I've seen them built. I've trained in Seattle with Boeing. And I have an affinity with them. But I'm deeply disappointed at the way that company has handled this situation. And I know that they're going to, this will be a metamorphosis for them. But we have to look at why they did it. Because the airline industry is growing so quickly, there are hundreds of aircraft being ordered in countries that haven't had a, a wealth of pilot experience. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of young people now who are being trained to operate these aeroplanes because uh, we need we need to get pilots into them quickly to get them operating to make money. Mm-hmm. And they haven't had any flying experience. So the systems are having to be developed to make up for that lack of experience. So aeroplanes are increasingly being built with more and more automation and less and less requirement for pilots to actually know how to fly. Which is great when you've been... I've been a pilot for 50 years. I love to fly. And I've experienced having to manipulate an aeroplane by hand for most of my career. It's nice to get in an aeroplane that's automated where I can press a button and relax and just keep an eye on it. And that a lot of the safety things that I used to concern myself with are now automated through computer systems on board the aeroplane. The chances of mid-air collision have been dramatically reduced by a thing we call TCAS, which is a collision avoidance system. There's ground proximity warning systems which paint pictures of terrain ahead of us so we're less likely to fly into a hill than we were 20 years ago. Well, that's reassuring as a passenger. It is. I mean, aviation has never been safer. Mm. But we're about to launch into this new era where the pace of growth cannot keep up with the training and the ability of airlines to supply pilots to operate these aeroplanes. So the aeroplanes have to have all these 
redundancies designed into them to cope with the lack of experience that may come forward from a result of not having enough trained pilots, experienced pilots. And it gets you to thinking about how we rely on autopilot too much. And we have a saying in the industry about uh, called automation complacency, mm-hmm. where pilots tend to lose their flying skills because they actually feel they're deep down like it's okay the autopilot will look after it the computer's got it handled it does a better job than i do Mm, well here's what i reckon graham Mm -hmm. i reckon that too many men running their lives on malfunctioning autopilot systems Mm -hmm. i know that i was they haven't had the experience of flying their lives manually Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't learned. Please explain. All these autopilot systems have been downloaded into their lives through the way they were brought up, you know, through their school, through what their mates told them, through uh, stuff that they learned. You know, they could just get through the mass media, through, through culture. Yeah. You know, all the institutions in our society, even church can be responsible. Yeah. And, you know, some of them are actually good, but it only takes one autopilot system to derail a man's life and send it plummeting to the ground Mm. and a man can just be wondering not understanding why this is happening yeah what's going on yeah and so that's what i was thinking about when you know you're telling us all about the the issue with the mcas and boeing Mm. i mean have you seen that oh in myself our guidance systems have all been pre-programmed by forces that we have no control over Uh, even our genetics to some extent to a large extent yeah Sure. It's in the food that we eat and, and we're, we're consuming things that we have no idea about. Um, yeah, for me, media is the biggest, uh, the biggest infection, has been the biggest infection in my life. It, in a crea- it creates a, a picture of a person that I'm deemed to need to be based on the requirements of corporations who pay large amounts of money for advertising. For example, mm. I'm a real man if I wear Calvin Klein underwear. I'm a real man if I drink uh, a certain brand of alcohol. Well, there you go. I'm not a real man. I've never worn Calvin Klein. Can't afford it. Nah. Can't afford it. And, and uh, yeah, and what about that trend where uh, where men want everyone to know they can afford Calvin Klein, so they wear it so the label's seen above their yeah. belt. Like. Flash the undies. Flash the undies, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it looks really cool, doesn't it? Does it? Yes, yeah, so no. no. So we're, we're all pre-programmed. Um, but we're not aware of these things. And so subtle. It's, it's important for us to to just open our eyes and be aware of all the autopilot systems that are being programmed into our lives. Oh, i got one big one for you. Okay. It's around lust. And it's about, well, it was more predominant back in the 80s, but um, female conquests, you know, you're a real man if you had a lot of sex with a lot of different women. Mm. Um, you know, a, a guy who was monogamous in a marriage was boring. Well, there you go. I'm not a real man. In actual fact, now that's really frowned upon. But back in, in the days when I was um, growing up, and I haven't stopped growing up yet, I'm only 66, but um, I I remember feeling like uh, I felt so wretched about who I was as a man that I would seek to create an image of being a man by my infidelity, by my sex addiction, not proud of it. Not proud of it at all. It was horrible. It was mm. very, very destructive. And this thing of, you know, real men don't cry. What a load of rubbish. You know, and we've we've all bought that. You know, yeah. the real men I admire, they did cry. You don't tell me that the Anzacs in the trenches didn't cry. Yeah. That's rubbish. That's just, I don't get that. And I, I think that's a stereotype that we, has done us uh, no good whatsoever. Well, here's another autopilot system that men fall into. Mm. If you're in trouble... 
work harder. Yeah. How about that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done that. That's yeah. that's my default. You know, yeah. I've got to, unless I challenge, and I'm still, I still struggle with that, by the way. Yeah. You know, really, was that true for you? Yeah. He who dies with the most toys wins. I never managed to get toys. Well, you know, if, you know, you know the bigger your house, the more cars you own. The, yeah. The bigger your boat, the more successful you are. I mean, um, uh, we we've lost it, and and as a result, our our sons have lost it. Mm-hmm. And so, so the lives of men, uh, you know, are all stuffed up very often, mm-hmm. and men don't know why because there's all these pre-programmed autopilot systems that have you know inserted themselves into their their lives. And so, like uh, like those poor pilots on those two planes that went down, the yeah. the Boeing's seven three seven Maxes. Mm. They struggle to, to get their nose pointed in the right direction, but it's a losing battle. And it was too late. And um, I see that happen in so many men who, who've been underdone or rushed through the construction process. Like, I believe Boeing got into this mess because they rushed a radical new design through that without giving it enough thought because they needed to get into the market quickly before it was closed on them. And men are the same. I've often said that I believe that if... The recipe for a good man required the ingredients to be baked in the oven for an hour 45. Most of us have been taken out in an hour. There's no childhood anymore, is there? No. I mean, you know, kids hit five, they've got their mobile phone or digital devices and the idea is to grow up as quickly as possible and do all the stuff that adults do with immature brains, basically. Yep, and and I see this acted out in this new positive parenting that we're seeing in society nowadays where children can't be disciplined and they have to be praised, constantly praised, even if they don't do achieve anything. Uh, you, You know, if there's an award given at school, everyone in the class gets it, not just one person because we don't want to offend or upset or make anyone feel bad. You know, and there's graduation ceremonies for kids coming out of kindy where they wear a cap and gown. You know, mm. what are we creating? Um, at the end of the day, we're actually creating a generation of people who won't be able to stand up to the pressure. Mm. Now, if you've been growing up as a child where everything you've done is right, even though everything you did was probably not right, mm-hmm. then one day you're going to go out to work for a boss who's going to say, hang on a minute. Uh, I don't want you to do it that way. That's wrong. You've just cost me several million dollars or whatever. I'm going to have to retrain you or I'm going to have to discipline you or whatever I have to do. Are they going to have the resilience to stand up mm. and say, oh, hang on, I thought I thought everything I did was perfect. And what about with disease and so on? I remember as a kid being allowed to go and play in drains and get dirty and experiment. I'd do things like I'd put snails in my mouth and I, <laughs> I had an air rifle as a kid and I used to have keep my air rifle pellets, which are made of lead, in my mouth. Oh, dear. Not good. That explains a lot now, Graeme. <laughs> I was just going to ask you whether – I won't ask that question now, whether it's come through. But but we, were, we weren't we were sterilised as kids. Mm. Kids nowadays and in a few generations, you know, just past, have been sterilised. So, you know, where every child has to have a mobile phone for their mm. safety. But some of the greatest threats to children nowadays come from their mobile phones in predatory mm. behaviours of people who access them. Mm. You know, kids can't walk home from school anymore mm. because of stranger danger. They have to be picked up by mm. mums in four-wheel drives. Now, the stats are where child molestation is considered, mm. 95% of perpetrators are known to their victims. Mm. It's not stranger danger at all. Mm. We've got to be cognizant of that. There are people who will try and abduct children. Mm. But by and large, the molestation of children happens within the family or the family environment. Mm. So what? Well, who are we kidding? There's a lot of sense in, in all that. 
I don't want to dismiss it at all, mm. but I just want to move away from, you know, the, oh, dear, young people these days, they're not cooked enough. No, uh, no, I'm talk- when I say that, I'm talking about us. Yeah, because I wanted to talk about us because it's only in the last few years that I've realised that I've, I've had a lot of, uh, you know, automatic pre-programmed autopilot stuff going on in my own life. Mm. In a sense, it's taken me, you know, 45 years to grow up. It only took you that long. Yeah. And, well, to start to grow up, mm. you know, I'm just a teenager now, discovering life and everything. It's wonderful. But, you know, I used to think that the world worked in a certain way, that families worked in a certain way, that my life was in a certain way, and this had never happened to me, and that would never touch me, this had never affect me, and that uh, this is how relationships worked. I had this fixed idea about all these things. And it's only in recent years that I've realized that they don't work. And my life was falling to pieces. I was, I was, you know, diving down to, towards the ground at forty degrees, yeah. coming close to the speed of sound, and and that I didn't know why, unless and unless I took a long, hard look at myself and was able to look at each of those pre-programmed autopilot aspects of my life mm. and analyze them carefully and ditch the ones I didn't want. Mm. That it was going to end up in, in tragedy for my life, like it did for my father's, you know, in my father's case. Yeah. And, uh, and many others in my family too, because these are all pre-programmed learned behaviours, these, these autopilot things. And what I've discovered is that we can talk about the reason why we end up like this, and I think it's worse now, you know. Boys uh, turn into men far too quickly, and our society pushes them like that. You know, they're not in the oven long enough, as you were saying. So that's Mm. all right. We can look at that. But how do you undo it, you know, when you're in that, you know, in that death plunge? And what I've discovered in my own life is that it's very, very painful. Thank God that I have more time than just six minutes, which is what those pilots on the uh, Boeing's, you know, 737s and Max had. Mm. You know, we've got more than six minutes. And Let me tell you, though, it doesn't, when your life goes by in big chunks, it feels like 20 years or six minutes. It feels like that more when you're on autopilot. Yeah, it does. You know, but when you actually start looking at your life step by step and deliberately as I've had to do, as hard as that is, it actually feels slower, Mm -hmm. you know, because what I've had to do is to, you know, look at my life and systematically peel off layers of my identity. And when you lose something of of who you thought you were, it's not who you really are. Yeah. It's painful. Mm-hmm. It causes, it causes loss, and it's a very painful process. I'm not finished with it yet, but unless I do that, I'm not going to end up at my goal. I'll never get there fully, right? Probably in this life, but unless I do that, I'm not going to end up at my goal of flying my own plane, which is, I guess, what everyone would like to do. Yeah, be in control, have the knowledge, the, the training, the right information to know why you behave the way you do as a man. Why is it that, you know, you're unfaithful to your wife? Or why is it that you might lie or betray a mate or go on the web and watch, watch porn? Whatever it is, all these autopilot behaviors, you know, that you don't want to happen, you don't understand why they're happening, and you fight them fruitlessly in a futile way. Mm. But too often in the lives of men, men, they happen. And unless you systematically look at your life and are willing to lose parts of who you think you were mm. and replace them with who you really do want to be, then you don't get there. 
that takes real courage. Oh, it does. Because you have to abandon you have to abandon software that uh, you've relied upon for years, which has let you down, and you haven't realised it. It's like those pilots, you know, who perished. There's probably nothing they could have done, right? Because it was rogue, a rogue program in their case. But the analogy is, if they had had to completely ditch all the training and education that they've had about what to do in such a situation. And there was one solution that was completely the opposite to everything they'd been taught to do. And if they'd taken that course of action, their lives and their passengers would have been saved. Now, that takes courage and it takes the ability to step outside yourself Mm. and reevaluate yourself from the ground up. And that's what I reckon men have to do. I think we focus too much on the negatives in the way we live our lives as men now because we're being reminded daily on how we fail. We're being reminded by the media, uh, by the various movements that we we fail as men, we fail as fathers, uh, we fail in virtually every aspect of our lives. We strive to for recognition in things like sport and uh, in some cases sexual prowess or whatever, in working really hard to achieve great goals. But I think we need to stop as men, stop looking at the criticisms and the negatives and start focusing on what's working. The Apollo 13 mission is a prime example of that. I don't, I don't know whether you've ever watched the movie Apollo 13. No, I haven't. It was a mission that was designed to go take men to the moon, uh, the second mission after Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. They stirred the oxygen tanks as part of their procedure to, on the way to the moon. They had to do various checks and the, the uh, oxygen tanks needed to be stirred mm-hmm. to keep everything functioning. And there was a short circuit and an explosion on board the command module which mm-hmm. blew out large sections of the, of the uh, systems. And they were left with virtually not much. Mm. Now, everything was going back through mission control in Houston. And there was an amazing flight director at mission control who's world famous, a guy called Gene Krantz. Mm-hmm. Everyone was listing all the things that weren't working on this spacecraft and it was looking horrific. These men were not going to come back. They were going to be lost in space. And he said, you know what? I can't stand this anymore. I'm sick of hearing about what's not working. Tell me what's working. Mm. What have we got that we can work with? Mm. And that's what turned that mission around and got those three men back on Earth safely. They actually looked at what they had and worked with what they've got. We have to, as men, start looking at our lives in that way. Yeah. And I think what you're saying, mate, is so true because I think I've gone through three phases in my life. Mm-hmm. In the first phase of my life, I was fully on autopilot. I, think my, I thought my life was hunky-dory and right and I was headed in the right direction, blissfully unaware. Mm. In the second part of my life, I've focused on the negatives. I've, uh, you know, I could see my failures, you know, as a husband, as a father, as a man, as a, as a follower of Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, as a human being. Mm-hmm. But now I was consciously aware of these things, and they, they were seriously dragging me down. That's seven, eight, nine years ago. But I couldn't understand. It's like those pilots that couldn't understand what's happening to the plane. They knew what was happening, but they couldn't understand. Why it was happening? Yeah, why? Now I'm in a phase where I'm in a much better place. You are, and you're going through some hard times. Yeah, I'm in a, but I'm still in a much better place. Yeah. I'm still prone to focus on the negatives as a man. So that's a good correction from you, good reminder that you're giving me. I'm prone still to do that, but that's because those programmed habits and thought patterns run really deep. And yeah. also, because I'm in a much better place, I'm able to look at those negatives and call them out and talk about them openly and honestly, but in the hope that I'll help you, many other men 
who yeah. might, you know who might hear this one day. Yeah. No, it's really important that we um, we have to understand the depth of our brokenness. We are broken. I don't know anyone on the planet who isn't. We have to understand the depth of our brokenness in order to repair it. Mm. We have to say, righto, that isn't working, that isn't working. The stuff that isn't working needs to be cut adrift. If being lonely causes you to watch pornography, then create situations where you're less lonely. If feeling bad about yourself causes you feelings of depression where you want to take your own life and all those sorts of things, it's really hard to step out of that. Mm. But I can guarantee you this, your feelings are not based in truth. So you need to start surrounding yourself with people who are Mm. going to be authentic to tell you what's working. Mm. You know, I don't know a man who who I've known who's taken his own life, who hasn't had things in his life that Mm. were really well-functioned and could have been used, you know, to incredible advantage for him. But we tend so much to put so much energy into the stuff that we've done wrong. Mm. You know, imagine if if you could go to your wife and say, you know, you're going through a few problems in your marriage and you could go to her and say, I've just written a list of the things that I know are defective in my character. Mm-hmm. And I've also written a list of things that, I'm, that I know that I can work with. Mm-hmm. I need your help. I need you to tell me what I need to work on. I need you to tell me what I need to get rid of. But in a way that's going to lift me and uphold me and not crush me. Mm-hmm. That takes great courage because you make mm-hmm. yourself vulnerable. And I firmly believe that my strength lies in my vulnerability. Mm-hmm. In the aeroplane environment in the 737 MAX, let's look at the um, Airbus that landed in the Hudson River, Mm. Uh, Sully Sullenberger. Right at the critical moment, just before impact, he looked across at his co-pilot and he said, Jeff, I think the co-pilot's name was, is there anything we've forgotten? Is there anything we need to do? And we need to do that in our lives. Mm. The reply was no, he couldn't think of anything. Mm. But we need to keep doing a how goes it. I need to find the courage to ask you as Mm. a mate, how am I going? Mm. Can you see anything in me that I need to develop, Mm. anything in me that I need to work on? We have to start drawing on each other, and the only way we can do that is to accept that we're all broken. But a lot of people don't have those kind of mates. Well, it's about time we made them. Yeah. You know what? It's half past time that we made friends like that. I don't don't want to drink. They drink with them. They'll have a joke with them. They'll go to the footy with them, but actually talk about their lives. Doesn't happen that often. Well, look, I was, I was mentoring a guy in a, in a broken marriage not long ago, and he said to me, um, "Every time I, me and my best mate get together, it's a disaster. We end up at the pub, and we end up doing stupid things. We go to strip joints, da 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 da." And I said to him, "Well, you need to change friends." <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, I probably do, but he's my best mate." I said, "Well, there's another way of changing friends. You can actually, if he's your best mate, you can start acting like his best mate and saying your behaviour and mine is not serving us as men." Mm. What can we do differently? I want to support you in living a better way, mate, because Mm. we're on the road to destruction, you and me. And when you put us together, we're like poison. So don't abandon your best mate. Mm. Actually have a real conversation with him. Actually say to Mm. him, why are you behaving like this? Mm. Why am I allowing you to influence my behaviour, you allowing me to influence yours? What are we going to do about this? Are we going to be real friends? Yeah, that's good. And if you're not going to be, then cut each other adrift because you're poison for each other. You were telling me in another chat about how men don't often realise the lives that they influence. Yeah. Right? You know, when a plane goes down, rather morbid thought, but we've been talking about planes. When a plane goes down, it's it's hundreds of people involved, you know. But uh, with men, it's fathers and sons and, and grandchildren. It's generations, potentially. 
when a plane goes down in a man's life. But when a man can get control of his life and learns to fly, it's those same number of people and probably many more, you know, down the stream of time, you know, an ever-increasing number of sons and daughters and, and grandchildren and, and, and whatnot. It's not just the people that they're with at the time when they're alive. They'll be blessed because of it. Mm. They'll get the happiness. Mm. They'll get the benefits. Yeah. They'll get the learnings. They'll look back and they'll remember you in the right sort of way. That's very true, and that's a worthy goal to go for. And, and, and I'll go back to the only way you can get something to work is to realise that it isn't. Mm. We have to be able to say to each other, you know, if the aeroplane's in a spin and I don't know, I've forgotten how to pull it out of the spin, I need to look at my co-pilot and say, I actually don't know what's going on here, do you? Mm. I need your help. Mm. And that means you've got to step away from your pride and you need to be right. And look, what I found, Ellie, you know, as well as I do, I do a lot of speaking to men in public about pornography addiction and I've shared my own falls and victories and whatever, uh, sometimes mostly to the benefit of everyone concerned. I think there was a time when I admitted that I'd had a fall back into it mm-hmm. and I admitted to a group of two or 300 men that I'd had a fall and at the end of it they all came up and embraced me and they said, thank God. <laughs> I said, what, thank God I had a fall? No, thank God you admitted it because I've, I've been falling and I thought I was the only one. I thought there was something wrong with me. When we do that, we give permission to each other to be authentic and real. Mm. And the sense of relief we get when we admit mm. that we're out of control yep. and we need help mm. is far-reaching. And that's what breaks the chain that goes on. If we don't break it, we'll go on from one generation to the next we have to break the chain. That's what real courage is. Mm. I'm, I'm behaving the way I am because of the experiences I've had through my growing up, which were a pass on of the experiences mm-hmm. my father had through his growing up. Am I going to perpetuate that in the lives of my children and grandchildren or am I going to break the chain? Well, I've decided to break the chain. You're turning off the autopilot and you're flying manually. That's right. Good on you. You don't need religion for all this stuff we're talking about. Mm. You know, I'm sure you've seen men who've, who've broken that cycle and who've taken control of their lives, you know, through your own counselling, who, who yeah. you know, haven't been religious, haven't done it through religious reasons. But here's my opinion, Graham, and I'm thinking here that in my experience and what I've seen, stepping outside yourself and taking hold of a greater power than, than yours, you know, a divine power... In my experience, boy, that sure has helped me. Yeah. I don't think I could have gotten through. Well, that's so true in my life as well, Ellie. I've been in situations in a 737 where the automatics and the computers are doing stuff that's a bit weird. Not to the extent of the max, but I've been in situations where I think, what on earth is it doing now? And the one thing that I always gives me great comfort, it's still an aeroplane. It's still got two wings, two engines, a set of landing gear. It's got a tail. It's got a control wheel and some throttles. Mm -hmm. And it's got a windscreen. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, turn off all that fancy stuff and just go back to basics and fly the aeroplane. Aviate, navigate, communicate is the creed of all pilots. Aviate, fly the aeroplane. Don't let the machine fly itself. You fly it. That's why you're there. You know, we've all been given skills and gifts in our lives that we can apply to situations that seem out of control. And we've also got friends who have skills that we don't have that they can apply to ours to make something work. Mm. The only way we can get there is to be vulnerable and admit that we're out of control and we need help. 
And I thank God for every moment that I've done that, that always I've always had the answers I needed to get me through to the next step. And that's why you and I are here today. Yep. Oh, it's been great chatting to you again, Graham. Yeah, thanks, Sally. Time uh, goes quick when we talk. Oh, it does. And uh, I don't know about you, but I go away inspired. Yeah, I, I do Every too. time. Reinvigorated. And yeah. I, I'm a bit worried, though, that the way we talk, that if we ever do go fishing, we won't catch anything because we'll be too busy talking and not sitting there quietly looking at what's going on. Yeah, well, I'll probably blame you, so it'll be all right. Yeah, well, that's a good thing about having friends like you, that I've always you're got the, someone to blame. You're the professional. <laughs> good on you. See you next time, All mate. right, see you. Love you, mate. Bye. Me too. Bye. Mates in Courage, brought to you by Good News Unlimited. To sign up for Graham and Ellie's daily spiritual message emails about recovering from addictions, hurts and hang-ups, visit goodnewsunlimited.com. To book Graham and Ellie for talks, get in touch at the same website. And if you're troubled by anything you've heard, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or an equivalent service in your own country. Thanks for listening. Mates in Courage. Catch you in the next episode.